Hello, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a podcast recorded live at our May 2015 event in which Canadian writer Emily St. John Mandel speaks with Jaleesa Gracewood. Emily is a writer for online magazine The Millions and the author of four novels, Last Night in Montreal, The Singer's Gun, The Lola Quartet, and 2014 National Book Award finalist and Arthur C. Clarke Award winner, Station Eleven. Her essays and short fiction have been anthologised in many collections, and in this session she speaks specifically about Station Eleven, a novel in which the world has been decimated by influenza, and a Shakespearean troupe with the motto, Survival is Insufficient, hits the road to cheer up unlucky survivors. We hope you enjoy this session. Lisa Gracewood, and welcome to an hour of conversation with Emily St. John Mandel. Um, we'll, we'll talk for probably about 45 minutes, mostly about Station Eleven, her spectacular book, um, and then we'll, we'll have some questions from the audience. There's, there's roving microphones uh, today, so once we get to that part of the afternoon, just put your hand up and yell out. Oh, it's good to see a lot of you here. Um, since we only have an hour with Emily, I want you to take a moment now to turn off your telephones, please, because if we spend even a second scrabbling around in a handbag, we will regret it. Uh, and poor old Amy Bloom this morning had to answer three phone calls during her session, so that was not good. Um, right, and then afterwards as well, of course, Emily will be signing copies of her books outside, so if you don't get a chance to ask your question, then you can meet her at that point. Or if you have any secret questions. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So let me introduce you to our, our author today. Uh, Emily St. John Mandel trained as a dancer before she was a published writer. And having read her novels, I think this maybe explains some of the, the beauty and the strength and the muscular exactness of her writing. Uh, she was born and raised on the west coast of British Columbia on a small island, is that right? That sure. is right, yeah. Excellent. Uh, and then moved to Toronto and spent some time in Montreal as well before winding up in New York City where she lives today. And I also, I think that oscillation between tiny, uh, isolated places and the energy of a big city is something that, that I see a lot of in her writing as well. So I'm going to be asking about that. Uh, she's written deep reviews and some very sharp essays uh, for the books website, The Millions, which some of you may be familiar with. Uh, and if you're not, I would encourage you to go out and read it immediately you leave this session. It's a wonderful website. And Emily's work on there is fabulous. Um, and she's written four novels. And the most recent one, Station Eleven, is the one that we'll be talking about the most today. Station Eleven opens with tragedy, quite literally, uh, when an actor dies on stage during a performance of King Lear on a snowy night in Toronto. Almost in passing, the novel notes, this was during the final month of the era when it was possible to press a series of buttons on a telephone and speak with someone on the far side of the earth. Actually, that's your second warning to turn off your phones. <laughs> <laughs> it's no spoiler to say that within pages, the novel spirals outward from this singular tragedy to describe the end of the world as we know it, the collapse of civilization due to a fast-moving flu virus that kills almost everybody. We then fast forward to 20 years after the end of air travel, as the novel says, and we meet a band of survivors, but they're not just any survivors. The traveling symphony, as they call themselves, are actors and musicians who make a circuit of the tiny remnants of civilization around the eastern shore of Lake Michigan, playing music and performing Shakespeare. 
they travel in horse-drawn, um, what do you call them, pickup trucks. Pick trucks, yeah, exactly. one, one of which is inscribed with a fabulous motto, survival is insufficient. So that's the merest sketch of what the novel is about. Uh, it's apocalyptic, it's humane, it's jammed with incident and character, and it takes time to meditate on how things came to be. It also holds up a mirror to the mundane beauty of our lives as they are now. Simple things like a glass of water, a telephone. Um, and, and it reveals the most nightmarish extrapolations imaginable if it were all to go terribly wrong. I read it basically while holding my breath, and when I got to the end, I started again and read it a second time. And I just can't wait to talk about it. So please join me in welcoming Emily St. John Mandel. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, Emily, a couple of days ago, you tweeted that you'd flown from Monday and arrived on Tuesday, and you were in New Zealand, and it was right. the future. Right. Welcome to the future. Well, thank you very much. I love being in the future. Yeah, yeah I skipped Monday altogether. Exactly. I left That's on right. Sunday. It's amazing how that happens. <laughs> And thank you all so much for being here today. It's wonderful to see so many people, and it's such a pleasure to be here at the festival. Excellent. Thank you. What wonderful Canadian manners you have. <laughs> <laughs> um, is the future everything you expected it to be? It is, except with more jet lag. But you know, uh, I guess I should have seen that coming. It's you should have seen like, yeah, that coming. Actually, that speaking of jet lag... 30 give, hours of travel. Oh, exactly. Well, yeah. given the way that the, the virus travels <laughs> in the book, which is the, the inciting incident simultaneously all over the world, how do you ever manage to get yourself on an airplane? <laughs> The secret is, I was thinking about that kind of thing before I wrote the book. Oh. <laughs> right, so um, I have heard from a lot of people who've read Station Eleven on airplanes and they been, did it on airplanes. Yeah, oh. and been quite unsettled yeah. and been very, <laughs> very vocal about that on Twitter afterwards. Um, and I almost feel like it should come with a warning sticker of some kind. Like, should, you know, perhaps not, don't read this on an airplane exactly. or while you have the flu. But yeah, these were. Um, I guess these are just places that my somewhat morbid imagination um, tended uh -huh. to take me. And, yeah, so it had been something I've been thinking about. Excellent. Well, yeah. that was my next question is what, what was the germ of the novel? Like, when, when did it come to you as a... I saw you did there. <laughs> uh, the germ of the novel. My starting point for Station Eleven was partly mm -hmm. just that I wanted to write something very different from my previous three books. Right. And I was happy with the way they turned out. Yep. They were generally categorized as literary noir. Wow. Yeah, and I've really never set out to write in a genre of any uh -huh. kind. I, um, I, I've always just set out to write literary fiction, mm -hmm. you know, whatever that is. It's really impossible to define. I've set out to write literary fiction, but with the strongest possible narrative drive. Yeah. I've never wanted to choose between plot and the beauty of language. I've uh -huh. always wanted to have both. And an unexpected side effect of focusing on plot is that uh -huh. that can drive you into the borderlands of genre, which is something I really hadn't anticipated. So I'd written these three novels, which had ended up, because they had criminal elements in the plot, being categorized as crime fiction. And it occurred to me that if I kept going in that genre indefinitely, that I would eventually be pigeonholed as a crime writer. Uh -huh. And the thought of being pigeonholed as anything was just so profoundly unappealing to me. Is that can become limiting, you know, once you get boxed into these marketing categories. Uh -huh. So I thought, for my fourth novel, this might be a good moment to try something completely different. A whole other pigeonhole. <laughs> right, exactly. I'll find a different pigeonhole and I'll stay yep. there. <laughs> yeah, so I was originally going to just write about the life of an actor. I imagined it as a novel about an actor in one of those scrappy, underfunded, little traveling theater troops. Um, I was going to set it in present-day Canada, a Shakespearean company moving from town to town. But... Something that I'd wanted to write about for a while, which you alluded to in the introduction, was this incredible world in which we find ourselves. Mm 
where it is possible to get from New York City to New Zealand in 33 hours. Um, we can enter a series of buttons into a handheld device and speak with someone on the far side of the earth. Mm -hmm. Somebody walked into this room this morning, flipped a switch, and the room was flooded with electric light. Water comes out of faucets. Mm -hmm. These are extraordinary things that I think we take for granted sometimes to the extent that we almost don't notice them anymore. And it occurred to me that a way to write about this spectacular apparatus of technology that surrounds us would be to write about its absence. So I thought, well, perhaps I'll keep my original idea of a traveling theater company, but set it in a post-apocalyptic landscape. So that was, those are really the starting points for Station Eleven. That's fantastic. So when you think about writing a post-apocalyptic landscape, mm -hmm. how much of that for you was conjecture and how much was research? And when it came to the research, how much of the research was you know, facts, non-fiction, and how right. much of it was other people's fictions? Because that's, that's a great that's question. A it, it is, genre, yeah, yeah, it is a popular genre. Um, for other people's fiction, I always feel that I need to give credit at this point to a wonderful novel called The Dog Stars by Peter Heller, which, if you haven't read, is absolutely gorgeous. That's the novel that I read, I guess I'd already completed a first draft of Station Eleven. But I read that book, and he pointed out that gasoline goes stale after two or three years. And that was one of those details where if I'd gotten that wrong, I would have had combustion engines 20 years out. Oh. I would have gotten 300 emails from oh, yeah, <laughs> saying, <laughs> I liked your book. but um, So I'm intensely grateful to Peter Heller. Um, the research that I did, and a lot of it's pure conjecture. Uh, for the most part, it was really just a matter of imagining what the world looks like without electricity yeah. and then without, without ease of transport. So the trucks don't arrive at the stores, the airplanes don't leave the ground. Um, it falls apart very, very rapidly. Um, and when people stop going to work, you know, as all these things happen, then everything falls apart. Your internet service provider goes down. You know, these details that you don't think about. Um, so, right, it was largely a matter of conjecture and subtraction. I did spend some time on survivalist forums uh, on the internet, <laughs> which, for the record, I absolutely do not recommend. Those are, that was so unsettling. Um, wow. I guess I've known in a sort of abstract sense that there is a certain subset of the population that's making very active preparations for the end of the world. Yeah. But I would read these posts, and, you know, I've been thinking, well, I should get some sense of what it would really mean to live without electricity, you know, the realities of having to make your own soap, these mundane things you don't think about. So I'd be looking through these posts, and they'd all be along the lines of um, me and the wife are taking our four kids and our arsenal of semi-automatic weaponry <laughs> and moving to our 40 acres off the grid in rural Tennessee. <laughs> Does anybody have any suggestions for homeschooling materials? This will end well. <laughs> so, yeah, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> Yes, it was a lot of that. It was extremely unsettling. Um, yeah, yeah, a combination of trying to trying to read a bit of that kind of thing so I didn't make any enormous errors. Um, and pure conjecture. And the conjecture would drive me down the craziest Google rabbit holes. Uh -huh. I like, um, could horses really pull an extended bed for a pickup truck? That's a good question. Um, yeah, with the engine removed. What is the weight of that pickup truck? How big do the wheels be? Should they be oxen instead of, you know, it could just go forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, lots of obsessive Googling is really what it came down to. That's amazing. Wow. So, so in fact, the novel's just won. It was listed for the National Book Award. Um, so it's, it's obviously been recognized and, and by, I think, many readers here as serious literary fiction. <laughs> but it's also just won the Arthur C. Clarke Award for yeah, science fiction. such a lovely surprise. Yeah. Because uh, I, I don't think of myself as a science fiction writer, per mm -hmm. se, you know, from 
what I said at the beginning about just trying to write fiction and then, you know, um, what you put in your plot drives you in one direction or the other. But I grew up reading science fiction, uh, and did. I uh, do really like it. Yeah. The, uh, the first winner of that award was Margaret Atwood. Exactly. Of course, if you grew up in Canada, that's, you know, your reigning <laughs> queen of literature. Um, yeah, so it, it was tremendously moving to me to have that recognition. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, it puts you in the company of Margaret Wood, as that's you say, incredible. for The, the yeah. Handmaid's Tale, and Marge Piercy's Body of Glass, which is another right. fantastic right. novel. Um, Neil Stevenson, China Mieva, all, all those people. So, so you didn't necessarily think you were writing science fiction, but they've recognized I, I it as I didn't mean that. to, but you yeah. know, I didn't mean to write crime fiction either. And <laughs> <laughs> the only other award I've ever won was the Prix Mystère de la Critique in France, which was... Um, uh, the Critics Mystery Prize. Really. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I seem to not be good at sticking to one genre. So right. Moral of that story. Oh, no, good for you. That's great. I, I think all novels are science fiction in a way because right. they extrapolate from non yeah. facts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I managed to find an online discussion between some people who were. They, they were worried about whether this was actually a science fiction novel or not. And oh, God. You... <laughs> Here we go. Okay, um, let's go. But, but this one comment kind of jumped, jumped out at me, which was somebody saying, well, the writing is very nice, and, and it's a nice twist to have a post-apocalyptic world be so well nice. And so I wanted to ask you, is there something particularly Canadian about your, <laughs> your apocalypse? A very nice, polite apocalypse at the beginning. <laughs> You know, it drives me crazy when people say that because, you know, I look at it and it's something uh -huh. I've heard before. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just too pleasant. Now, I did kill off 99% of the population with a super flu. I don't know how much further I could really be expected to go. But no, um, what they're alluding to, though, is a conscious choice that I made, which is that it seems to me that most of the post-apocalyptic fiction that I read and the films that I've seen are set in the immediate aftermath of a complete right. societal collapse yep. when it is all horror and mayhem and disaster. And as I was thinking this through, you know, it's, I think that such a period would occur. Mm -hmm. It's just not plausible to me that it would be like that forever, everywhere on earth. I think that mayhem isn't a really sustainable way of life over decades and generations. I think that I believe that's in the Canadian Constitution. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's that's in there. Like subsection cool. B, you know, right. paragraph 17, um, mayhem. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that eventually people would want something more than killing each other. Mm. And to yeah. me, that was a period that was more interesting to write about. That, you know, presumably you have this period of chaos and misery, but what comes next? what's the culture that begins to emerge 15 and then 20 years down the line. Mm -hmm. So that was really more interesting to me to write about than to write about the period of mayhem, which I felt had been very well covered by a lot of other writers. This is true. And it, maybe yeah. they'll make it into the movie version. I'm sure. Hard to yeah, say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and there is horror in the book, as you say, but it mostly happens off stage. It mostly happens um, off stage. Yeah, which, um, you know, it's a stylistic choice. I think it's maybe fallen a little bit out of fashion. I've... Um, I feel like I've read some quite brutal fiction in the last few years. But I've always felt like that one should go in with the presumption that readers have good imaginations. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that the suggestion of horror is often more effective and creepier and darker than spelling out every blood spatter and disaster on the page. Um, <laughs> so that was what I was thinking about, that probably yeah. what you can imagine is as dark as anything that I could write, and it's probably not necessary for me to ex ex bleh, 
explicate that. Right, <laughs> precisely. That. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. if you think of King Lear as well, I mean, you've got your out vile jelly moment, right. but a lot right. of the more horrible stuff happens off stage. Absolutely. Well. Yeah. So actually, it might be nice to um, have a, a quick um, section from the book just sure, to, to set up that, that transition between absolutely normal life, people in an audience watching something on a stage, <laughs> and, then, and then the awful and thing the that awaits the them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, so just to set this up briefly, um, I'm going to read a condensed version of chapter two of Station Eleven. It's about two or three minutes. In chapter one, an actor has died of a heart attack on the fourth act of King Lear. And this is the aftermath of that event. There were few people left at the Elgin Theater now. Six stragglers had drifted to the bar in the lobby, where a bartender mercifully remained. The stage manager was there, also Edgar and Gloucester, a makeup artist, Goneril, and an executive producer who'd been in the audience. The conversation had turned to informing Arthur's next of kin. But who was his family? Goneril was perched on a bar stool. Her eyes were red. Without makeup, she had a face like marble, the palest and most flawless skin the bartender had ever seen. She seemed much smaller offstage, also much less evil. Who did he have? He had one son, the makeup artist said. Tyler. How old? Seven? Eight? The makeup artist knew exactly how old Arthur's son was, but didn't want to let on that he read gossip magazines. I think he maybe lives with his mother in Israel. Ex-wife number three? This was the producer. I think the kid's mother was ex-wife number two. How many ex-wives are we talking about here? The bartender was polishing a glass. He also has a brother, the makeup artist said, but I can't remember his name. I just remember him saying he had a younger brother. I think there were maybe three or four, Goneril said, talking about the ex-wives. Three? Three. The makeup artist was blinking away tears. Arthur Leander had walked into the theater just a few hours ago, and it was inconceivable that he wouldn't walk in again tomorrow. Three divorces, Gloucester said. Can you imagine? He was recently divorced himself. He was trying to think of the last thing Arthur had said to him. He wished he could remember. Has anyone been informed? Who do we call? I should call his lawyer, the producer said. This solution was inarguable, but so depressing that the group drank for several minutes in silence before anyone could bring themselves to speak. His lawyer, the bartender said finally. Christ, what a thing. You die and they call your lawyer. Who else is there? Goneril asked. His agent? The seven-year-old? The ex-wives? I know, I know, the bartender said. It's, it's just a hell of a thing. They were silent again. Someone made a comment about the snow coming down hard, and it was. They could see it through the glass doors at the far end of the lobby. From the bar, the snow was almost abstract, a film about bad weather on a deserted street. Well, here's to Arthur, the bartender said. To Arthur, the others said. They drank for a few more minutes and then went their separate ways in the storm. Of all of them there at the bar that night, the bartender was the one who survived the longest. He died three weeks later on the road out of the city. <laughs> Thank you.
That's utterly chilling. And <laughs> Thank you. That's what I was going <laughs> and for. And wonderful. So. <laughs> um, and also would not have been necessarily out of the ordinary for um, people in Shakespeare's time. So is, it, is right. Shakespearean thread, is that part of a connection that you're trying to draw between a, a world in which life was random and brutal and, and strange? That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it specifically in those terms, mm -hmm. but... I had been thinking about the parallel between Elizabethan England and this post-pandemic world I was writing about in terms yeah. of the bubonic plague, which, yes. you know, as I was thinking about what the symphony's repertoire should be, and originally I had them performing plays from a whole range of eras, um, including modern teleplays, so Seinfeld and How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> um, but as I was refining that further and thinking about what would actually maybe resonate with an audience that no longer has electricity and that might not be so interested in these works that were so much of the modern world, I, I was thinking about the parallels between Shakespeare's time and the world of the book. And, you know, the most obvious one was that in his time, theater was so often a matter of these small traveling companies setting out on the road. And I did love the parallel of a world in which such a company might again set out with the age of electricity having come and gone. But then also the impact of the bubonic plague on his life and time, which is yeah. something I hadn't previously considered. But what it began to seem to me that probably people in his era would have been somewhat haunted by their memories of pandemics in the recent past. And that was exactly what I was trying to achieve in my fictional post-pandemic future. So I was absolutely thinking about that. That's brilliant. And, so, and there's a sense, too, that, that art... Um great art will survive, that it, that it is what's transmitted, and yet some of the other cultural touchstones that these people carry around <laughs> right. with them are Star Trek, um, yes, Star which, Trek. that's yeah. an epic, that's, that's legit, epic, right? I, I, can, yeah. I can get there, um, and comic books, the graphic novels. Right, right. So. Yeah, um, so, right, so the symphony's motto, survival is insufficient, yeah. um, I stole from Star Trek Voyager, it was an episode that aired in 1999. And I would have stolen that from anywhere. It just struck me as um, it's such an elegant expression of something that I believe to be true, that survival is never sufficient. And you see that here in our current world, that people play musical instruments in refugee camps and put on plays in war zones. There was a fashion show in Paris immediately following the Second World War when the city was still in a state of trauma and deprivation, that it was immensely important to, to, to put on this show, which might seem sort of frivolous to us, but was intensely important. So I liked that idea of, of a people who were interested in more than just survival. And yeah, that, that really became the thesis statement of the book. Mm -hmm. That was really the driving force of it. Yeah, that would make a great tattoo as well. Right. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, we should say that the title of the book comes mm -hmm. from uh, a graphic comic novel. comic book, right. Yes. right. Yeah, and right, the other part of your question. I was also interested in thinking about the randomness of what survives or doesn't. Mm -hmm. That, you know, we have love's labor lost, but some scholars think there was also a love's labor found. What was that play? And, um, so, you know, Shakespeare's plays, but then also, who else was there? Uh, surely there were great artists. If they weren't as good as Shakespeare, perhaps they were close, but yeah. we, we don't know them. You know, they're lost to history. So I liked the idea that what survives might not be just the things that seem like they naturally should survive, the Shakespearean plays and the Beethoven symphonies, but also things might survive purely by accident, like celebrity gossip magazines or, um, <laughs> or the self-published comic book. Um, and the comic book, it partly exists for technical reasons in the plot. Mm -hmm. I, um, it, you know, it's a very, it's a somewhat complicated structure, moving back and forth in time with these multiple characters. Right. 
And I thought that to make the book more cohesive, it might be a good idea to have one or two objects that carries through That's from right, yeah, right yeah, 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 from the pre-apocalyptic to the post-apocalyptic sections. So it was a comic book and it was a paperweight that was run through the book. Nice. And the comic book itself, we should say, is, is drawn by um, a character who finds herself in a very corporate environment. She, yeah. she starts out as a kind of artistic young person. Right. And then becomes very, very good at being a, what is she, like a, a an administrative secretary? Administrative And then yeah. becomes a shipping executive eventually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and there's that yeah. fabulous, there's, there's a vision at one point of a, a fleet of um, container ships just anchored. Right, that empty. was a real thing. That was yeah. um, an episode, an episode, a, uh, an article that ran in the Daily Mail, and I want to say 2008 or 2009, mm-hmm. by Simon Perry, and it was called, um, I think, The Ghost Fleet of the Recession. Wow. And it was this incredible, it was this incredible thing. Um, you know, it takes a long time to build a container ship. It can take two or three years or longer. So you order, you know, as a company, you order new container ships from oh. the South Korean shipyards. The order goes through and it's being processed. And if it happens that the world economy should crash in the meantime, you have these new container ships with mm-hmm. no demand whatsoever. So there were an enormous number of them anchored out of Singapore Harbor. And it was fascinating to me. So, yeah, so yeah, I had to use that. Exactly. And it's, it's a kind of science fictional vision. You can sort of see like a, right. a, a fleet of, of ships hovering in the air. Or um, uh, what else did it make me think of? The, yeah, just the fact that these sort of empty things designed to transport stuff around the world. Right, right. And it was quite chilling to imagine that the economy was, to realize the economy was that bad at that moment, that there really were no Christmas orders moving from continent to continent, that there was, you know, nothing... Nothing to be done, really, with these ships, except park them and hope that things got better. Precisely. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the, the comic books that the character, this character, Miranda, mm-hmm. who uh, is Arthur, she's the first wife right, of the actor right. who dies in the first act. So, um, but she finds herself as a shipping executive traveling Southeast Asia. She does. Yeah. She starts and, off in art school right. um, and then finds, as many art school graduates do, and as I did as a dance school graduate, that that wasn't the most employable course of studies. So... Becomes an executive assistant um, with a lot of downtime. And um, it, it, yeah, I always, I'm really interested in the graphic novel form. I think it's an exciting and interesting way to tell a story. So I liked the idea that she would be immersed in a secret project right. and that it would be a graphic novel. And I was thinking about the Calvin and Hobbes comics. Um, yes, I love that. Right, the sequences yep. with Spaceman's Fifth, mm-hmm. which were quite <laughs> funny, but they were also beautiful when he, uh, when Calvin went into his sort of alter ego mode, a spaceman mm-hmm. spiff, and he would be crossing these spectacular watercolor skies. It'd be pink and orange and two mm-hmm. moons on the horizon and yeah. this incredible landscape. Um, it, it was so appealing to me and it stayed with me since childhood. So mm-hmm. I, I liked, uh, right, I liked the idea of her being in that form. And what the comic books allowed me to do in this book is sort of, they sort of, uh, they sort of parallel the plot. You know, mm-hmm. the plot of a comic book is that you have these people stranded in an unfamiliar world. And the comic book is a space station. And I could say things in the comic book that I couldn't really say in the novel. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I stood looking over my damaged home and tried to forget the sweetness of life on Earth. Right. Which is a sentiment shared by the people in the novel who found themselves unexpectedly into the, in this catastrophically altered world. Mm-hmm. And many of them do long for what to us is the present day. Um, I can't really just drop that sentiment into a novel without it seeming incredibly cheesy, but the rules of comic books are different. So I could have a comic book character express that. So 
Yeah, so it did serve several purposes in the narrative. Nice, nice. And the, the people are not just stranded in um, time, uh, separated from that world as it was, but also in space. And that's one of they I are. think one of the most chilling things about the way you've constructed your apocalypse <laughs> is that when the you know when the thing stops spinning, when the planes stop, right. that's where you are. And if it's it the eastern changing. side of Lake Michigan, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's where you're staying. That does absolutely chill me. And I live in New York City, and yeah. my family is in the west coast of British Columbia. Uh-oh. It's a long walk. It's a very long walk, yeah. And it's incredible to realize how, how global our perspective is mm-hmm. and how much we take that for granted, that you can pick up your phone and read the news from the other side of the world. Yep. And that's just, you know, that's just the way it is. In a situation like this, where the Internet's gone, uh, telecommunications have fallen apart, the Postal Service goes down too, you have no idea what's going on 50 miles away, let alone the other side of the Pacific. Mm-hmm. So it, it was incredible and kind of chilling to think about just how localized our world would become in a situation like that. Absolutely. And one of the things that, that your novel does that I think makes it a literary novel, and um, not just a science fiction one, is that um, everybody's stranded in different ways. Everybody's right. separated from the planet that they wish they were on right. in complicated right. ways. So you've got a, a character who was a foreign correspondent, and right. he's now uh, in a wheelchair. And you've got, I mean, Arthur, who right. can never go back to that beautiful small island off the coast of British Columbia right. where he came right. from. Which is, is that your island? That is my island. I just changed the name. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. In real life, it's Denman Island, British Columbia, and it's... Mm-hmm. Um, it's about the same size and shape as Manhattan, both a thousand people. It's wow. incredibly beautiful um, and kind of a claustrophobic way to grow up in the way that any small place can be. Yeah. So, yeah, that was uh, the sections in the book where characters move to Toronto and find mm. freedom and anonymity. That was absolutely autobiographical. Because <laughs> <laughs> you. Yeah. Um, you wrote a beautiful essay for the millions about the proliferation of novels that have the title the something or other's daughter. Oh, right, yeah. And yeah. it turns out there's hundreds of them. Hundreds, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, the sausage maker's daughter was one. The alchemist's daughter, the innkeeper's <laughs> yeah. daughter, the lighthouse keeper's daughter. Uh, there are, yeah, once you start looking for them. Almost all so whose daughter are you? I'm the plumber's daughter. <laughs> yeah, my father did plumbing and gas fitting work, uh-huh. and uh, he's retired now. And my mother works with victims of domestic violence okay. and, um, and the homeless population on Vancouver Island. Right. And, yeah. and there was also some tree planting in your You did your research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my father was a tree planter for years yeah. before he was a plumber. The tree planter's daughter. And so you come from this, this tiny island with mm-hmm. a, thousand, a thousand people. A thousand people, just yeah. absolutely minuscule, via Toronto, Montreal, mm-hmm. to New York City. Right. Um, and so the, the, the tiny place and the big place and the, the city and the... The country, and that, that yeah. seems to show up in your fiction a little bit. Right. It? I guess there is a sense of displacement, I suppose, yes. which I don't mean in any kind of a negative way. It was, I, I love living in big cities. But moving from, moving between two very different environments, mm-hmm. or you've lived abroad, I mean, moving between yeah. countries, that's something that can absolutely, um, it can really change your perspective, mm-hmm. I think in a positive way. Um, it can open you up and you realize that you're the same person that you would be living anywhere. It can make you less nationalistic, or it did for me. Um, Yeah, so it is a theme that I do find myself returning to, this sort of sense of disorientation. And And one of the things that the the people in the book... um, we should say that there are little settlements and towns, but there's also there's an airport where people right, right. were basically stuck after they got diverted, uh, and it becomes its own little city it does. or town. And um, they can't, the, the, especially the children that were born after the collapse, they can't make sense of the idea that there were borders. Uh, right. They're, they're right. within almost walking distance of the Canadian right. US border. Right, it's true, it's true. Yeah. I mean, they are so abstract. Yeah. And. Um, 
Yeah, I don't think it would make sense to a kid born into that theoretical mm -hmm. post-apocalyptic, post-nationalistic, post-country world yeah. that there had been these imaginary lines and maps that were so intensely important to us. Um, once government's removed from that equation, it doesn't make sense anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it was interesting to write about that. It was interesting to write about how much like science fiction our current world would seem mm. to somebody born into that era. That, you know, the idea of uh, when it was hot, you could press a button and cold air would come out of a wall, yeah. for example. Uh, you know, these things that we take for granted. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the great things that the novel does is that it, it, um, it just enshrines and kind of makes magical the, the everydayness. Thank you. Of, you know, working ballpoint pen, the whole thing. And, and I think you come out of reading a novel like this as you would come out of any kind of disaster. So um, right. Christchurch, Nepal, um, Wellington yesterday. My God. Um, you come out of it pathetically grateful for really tiny things. <laughs> right. like, like a I don't think it's pathetic, though. Yeah. <laughs> are, it's wonderful that we have these things. Oh, it's true, genuinely yeah. grateful. I yeah. mean, there's a fabulous chapter you've written, which, which is an incomplete list of the things that we take for granted things, that we yeah. might not see again. Yeah. Can we hear sure, sure absolutely. So this chapter falls at the transition point of the novel, just as the, uh, as the end of the world's coming. An incomplete list. No more diving into pools of chlorinated water, lit green from below. No more ball games played out under floodlights. No more porch lights with moths fluttering on summer nights. No more trains running under the surface of cities on the dazzling power of the electric third rail. No more cities. No more films, except rarely, except with a generator drowning out half the dialogue. And only then for the first little while until the fuel for the generators ran out because automobile gas goes stale after two or three years. No more screens shining in the half-light as people raise their phones above the crowd to take photographs of concert stages. No more concert stages lit by candy-colored halogens. No more electronica, punk, electric guitars. No more pharmaceuticals. No more certainty of surviving a scratch on one's hand, a cut on a finger while chopping vegetables for dinner, a dog bite, no more flight. No more towns glimpsed from the sky through airplane windows, points of glimmering light. No more looking down from 30,000 feet and imagining the lives lit up by those lights at that moment. No more airplanes, no more requests to put your tray table in its upright and locked position. But no, this wasn't true. There were still airplanes here and there. They stood dormant on runways. They collected snow on their wings. In the cold months, they were ideal for food storage. In summer, the ones near orchards were filled with trays of fruit that dehydrated in the heat. Teenagers snuck into them to have sex. Rust blossomed and streaked. No more countries, all borders unmanned. No more fire departments, no more police. No more road maintenance or garbage pickup. No more spacecraft rising up from Cape Canaveral, from the Baikonur Cosmodrome, from Vandenberg, Tanegashima, burning paths through the atmosphere into space. No more internet. No more social media. No more scrolling through litanies of dreams and nervous hopes and photographs of lunches. Cries for help and expressions of contentment, and relationship status updates with heart icons whole or broken. Plans to meet up later, pleas, complaints, desires, 
pictures of babies dressed as bears or peppers for Halloween. No more reading and commenting on the lives of others, and in so doing, feeling slightly less alone in the room. No more avatars. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. It's beautiful. And as you say, it's an, an, an incomplete list. It's incomplete. Yeah. It's incomplete that list. chapter was much longer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once you started, where would you start? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, if I knew an apocalypse was pending, I would probably do a smash and grab on an optometrist mm-hmm. in a bike shop. Yeah. But what, what would you miss? In details. Oh, my God. God. Yeah. I would yes. have no teeth. All the toothbrushes. What All would you grab? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> I mean, toothbrushes, now that you mention it, would be good. Toothpaste. I guess I get a little bit obsessive on this topic because I have terrible teeth. So I feel like I would lose all of them in a post-dental world. Um, right, yeah. Um, you know, you try to get all the canned goods and some bottled water and mm-hmm. a fishing a, rod. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, fishing rod. Yeah. Good, very smart. Yeah. Um, there's a scene where, where Jivan, the character mm-hmm. in, in the early, no, uh, early chapters, uh, goes on a shopping spree. And I have right. to say, if, if you've ever lived in Manhattan or in New York, any, any big city, mm-hmm. when they, they announce that it's going to snow, You've seen this. It's incredible. Yeah, the lion goes out of the deli and around the block. And then, yeah, yeah. He, just, he goes yeah. nuts. He gets uh, trolleys of everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and that seems a normal human response, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's tipped off, but nobody else really is. Exactly, yeah. yeah. He has a half hour or so to fill yeah. up shopping carts. So. Yeah. That's, that's all he can bring himself to do. That's stunning. Um, so also, you've, you've said um, somewhere that you're... Your first novel was described as too quiet by a few people. <laughs> it um, was. <laughs> and we had the science fiction fans earlier saying it was very nice. But, um, but I, I, your writing is just, I, I love the way you construct a sentence, the Thank way you, you build Thank a scene. It's just, it's beautiful. And while some of, um, a, a lot of dark things happen, perhaps that's how mm-hmm. you've got the, the literary noir tag, right. you're also very funny. Well, uh, I, don't, I don't want to give away all the jokes in this, in this particular book. This apocalyptic <laughs> book is full of jokes. Um, but the bit where they're talking about physics and they're trying to remember what physics was and one of the younger people uh, thinks to herself, none of the older symphony members knew much about science, which was frankly maddening given how much time these people had had to look up things on the internet before the world ended. <laughs> <laughs> that would be frustrating, wouldn't it? You're, yeah. you're asking somebody and they're like, well, I don't know. I was looking at pictures of cats and <laughs> get into arguments with strangers about politics. I never learned quantum physics, even though it was there in my phone. Roots. <laughs> Precisely, yeah, yeah. yeah. It'd be incomprehensible. Um, but that made me wonder as well, like, what is, what is the role of humour uh, for you in, in literature in general and in surviving hard times? Well, I do write very dark books. Uh-huh. Um, you know, as whether described as quiet or nice. I mean, I think I have a murder in every one of my novels. And you know, here I kill off 99% of the population. Oh, yeah. So I do think that that's best rendered with the lightest possible touch. That, uh-huh. um, it's my philosophy on it. <laughs> I guess I write the kind of books that I like to read. Mm-hmm. I appreciate flashes of humor in an otherwise somewhat heavy book. I think right. it, um, I think it helps. It, uh, you know, it balances the tone a little bit. It, it can't be a trudge through nightmare, you know. And um, yeah, I think those little flashes make it more human. Yeah, absolutely yeah. human. Oh, that's, that's part of what I loved about the novel. Um, so you, clear, you don't mind 
talking about writing and your writing. No, particular. I don't mind. Because oh, in your first novel, Last Night in Montreal, um, there's, there's a lot of people who are, it's, it's a young person's novel, right? It's, it's, there's 20 <laughs> yeah. somethings to yeah. they're doing All their the characters somethings. are about my age and I was right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's great. It's a fabulous read. Thank you. But there's one character in that book who is a, she's a true artist. Everybody else acknowledges it. They're all trying. You know, they're right. trying to finish right. their dissertation. They're trying to be this right. or that. But she's really um, doing things. She's right? really doing it. And, and they say, um, the, the point is she, she never talked about it. She never seemed like she was posing. She never theorized or deconstructed. She just practiced her art, practiced it, instead of analyzing it to death. And it rendered the rest of us fraudulent. <laughs> I was 24. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, um, I was writing a lot in a particular cafe when I was working on this novel in Brooklyn. And it was a neighborhood called Williamsburg, which oh, is yeah. dense with hipsters. Like they're thick on the Hipster ground. Zero. Yeah, yep. yeah um, a lot of fedoras. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't help but notice that you know, as I was sitting there writing my book, um, a lot of people were talking about writing or talking about painting or describing the thing they were going to do. And there was a feeling like, so put down the coffee and go do it. <laughs> you know, that was, a, uh, it was something I found kind of funny at the time. I, uh -huh. Yeah, I liked writing about it. And you, you did put down the coffee. You went and did it. But you were a dancer. And like, how, did, how did you get from dancer to writer? Is that, was that a... Um, graduated and suddenly. Mm -hmm. I, um, I was homeschooled as a child. And one of the very few requirements of a somewhat haphazard curriculum was that yeah. I had to write something every day. Uh-huh. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I'd been in the habit of writing just a little short story or a poem mm -hmm. every day from the time I was about seven. That lasted a little while. And then I kept on doing it just for myself. I loved to write and never saw it as anything more than a hobby. Mm -hmm. At that time, I was absolutely focused on being a dancer from the time I was six years old onward. Wow. So I trained quite intensively in ballet. By the time I was 13, I was dancing five and then six days a week. And it was just this kind of absolute hyper-focus, switched from ballet to contemporary dance, which was my post-secondary education. And there was just a point when I was about 22, living in Montreal, where I realized that dance had become more of a burden than a joy. Uh -huh. There was nothing really fun about it anymore. Uh -huh. It was this thing that I felt driven to do. It was all I'd ever wanted to do with my life since I was that tall. And I just didn't really want to do it anymore. I was a bit burnt out. I found myself moving away from it. And at the same time, I'd begun to write a little bit more seriously. And I'd begun to think of writing as something that might replace dance in my life. Uh -huh. I liked the idea of writing a novel and being immersed in this grand project that could take a couple of years. Um, so I started working on what eventually became my first novel, Last Night in Montreal, that one you just quoted from. So, yeah. yeah, it was just a very gradual process of moving away from dance toward writing. Huh. And there, so you've been a book reviewer as well. Was that, was that parallel? Was that something that was going on alongside the, the novel um, writing, or did that come after? It came much after. Huh. Yeah, I didn't start reviewing books until probably a couple of years after my first novel came out, maybe longer. Huh. I, um, yeah, I just kind of fell into it. I started writing for The Millions as a guest writer, and then they took me on as a staff writer. And it's a wonderful site because you can write about whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So I could find a book I was excited about, something completely obscure, and, mm -hmm. and write about it. It was, um, it was fun. I've been reviewing a little bit more for newspapers lately, which, which is really a little bit mixed. You know, on the one hand, I really I do enjoy being part of a critical conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's satisfying to be able to, to review a book and feel that you've been able to give it its due, that you've considered everything as carefully as you can. Um, it's also, 
I don't feel good about writing bad reviews, which I do sometimes. Uh, that was um, my next question. Actually. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's really uncomfortable because I know how terrible that feels as a writer. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're being honest as a reviewer and you think that a book has problems, you have to, you have to bring that up. So I'm fairly ambivalent about reviewing at this point. But, yeah, because you, you yeah. wrote a beautiful essay on how... On bad reviews, I think the On bad reviews and how or why not to respond to them mm -hmm. because it's impossible to do so with a good grace. There's no way to respond to a bad review without seeming like a lunatic, in my experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, there are so many cautionary tales on the internet. It's, yeah. it's amazing. But, and I love, yeah. I love that you actually, but you stood up for reviewers in that piece, which is great. I'm a sometime yeah, I mean, book reviewer. Right, right. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're doing their job. Exactly. And it's uh, the review is not for the author of the novel. That's not the audience. So that's yeah. really... It's for the readers. Yeah, it's for the readers, yeah. yeah. And, you, and you would take that kind of the, the, the idea that if you can, you write, and if you can't, you just review. Which is ridiculous, <laughs> because, you know, yeah, um, any book review section at this point is mm -hmm. full of book reviews by award-winning novelists. You know, right. it's just something that we all do on the side. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. And so you, you had an, a lovely new formulation, which was those who can write. And those who can write but don't happen to be among the 1% of novelists who manage to subsist on their fiction alone also review. We're just trying to pay our rent here. It's yeah. <laughs> so true. So, actually, I had a moment I wanted to ask you. Um, uh, it feels in New Zealand at the moment. I mean, looking out here, you wouldn't think so. And looking at the beautiful the festival, the, mm -hmm. the thousands of people that are going to be here this weekend, um, you wouldn't think that, that things are a little bit desperate in the world of books. Um, but there's a line that Tom Robbins uses in one of his novels that he repeats, and it, it becomes darker every time he says it. The, the international situation was desperate as usual. Um, and I think in, in, in the world of books, is, right. the situation's kind of desperate as usual, and particularly here, uh, where we've lost sponsorship for our big book prizes and residencies. Mm -hmm. The Prime Minister told our best young writer to um, zip it. Um, I saw that. <laughs> that got, was yes, terrible. Yeah, this, this, yeah. This, uh, we feel a little bit under siege, and so I feel right. almost like I'm, I'm one of, in one of the little villages, and you're the travelling symphony. And <laughs> well, <thank you. laughs> what, what news of the wider world? Can you tell us something, <laughs> <laughs> something happy? <laughs> um, the festivals I go to are all like this. You know, there are still enormous communities of people who love books and will come out by the thousands. Mm -hmm. It's just a transitional time. You know, it used to be that books were one of the primary forms of entertainment. And they've inevitably taken a backseat to other forms of entertainment, which is just something that cyclically happens. That, um, you know, in the same way that gathering around the drawing room playing the piano has taken right. a backseat to radio, which then took a backseat to television. So it's, reading has become obsolete in the way that radio and bicycles has become obsolete, which is to say not obsolete at all. It's just right. a smaller, more devoted market. It's a different, uh, yeah, they just offer it. They just occupy a different place, I suppose, in mm -hmm. the primacy of, uh, of the culture and entertainment that, than they used to. Um, I don't know. I don't, I, I wish that more people read, but my understanding from studies I've read is that um, young adults and, you know, they're, 20s um, read more than the previous generation did. So, you know, there, there is a generation that queued up at midnight for the new Harry Potter book. Like, there is, is there is yeah. still a devoted following of readers. And, yeah, I don't think that reading's in trouble. But, okay. but yeah, you do have these disheartening things that happen. But. 
yeah. We'll, we'll make it through. We'll just we do, will. do some we'll more Shakespeare and yeah. Yeah, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, so the novel, not to give anything away, but the novel, many, many things happen and, mm -hmm. and paths converge and people reconnect. Um, and it ends with a, a significant new piece of information. There's, there's mm -hmm. a sort of uh, something on the horizon that, right, that we can right. sense is coming. And um, is that setting us up for a sequel, potentially? Or? No, there is no. no. <laughs> <laughs> She didn't say what the piece of information there is. <laughs> uh, there is no station twelve. I, um, uh -huh. Yeah, I think I felt like I've said everything I wanted to say about the right. end of the world and spent enough time there. Mm -hmm. I do think about creating the graphic novel in the book, the Doctor ah, Eleven comics. That would be cool. I, it's an interesting form. Um, it would be. be it might be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In fact, um, Game of Thrones guy George Martin said this was his favorite book of two thousand and fourteen. That was so, really nice of him. Yeah. yeah. Will we be yeah. seeing a TV adaptation? That's a great question. I sold the movie rights, so that's hopefully there'll be a cool. movie at some point. But, oh, but usually you sell the movie rights and the movie doesn't happen. So I'm sure, you know, it's not it's not real. It's kind of the way. So bank, <laughs> yeah. bank that check right. and then we'll, right. we'll see the movie yeah. if it comes yeah. out. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you, thank you much. so much for your generosity in talking to us. It's an absolute and, pleasure. Yeah. Thank you all for Join coming. Me and thank you. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast from the 2015 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.